President Biden is proposing to fix America with more taxes. Did you know that Alexander Hamilton, our first Secretary of Treasury, that founding father to whom we owe, at least partially, the foundation of America's economy and industry, believed that it was impracticable, meaning impossible in practice, to raise any considerable funds for the U.S. government from the direct taxation of us Americans. Mr. Hamilton would probably roll over in his grave if he found out how practically possible it is for our federal government these days to raise vast funds by directly taxing us Americans. Hey there, news peelers. Today is May 14, 2021, and this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee, or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. President Biden met with the top four congressional leaders this week in the Oval Office to discuss his ambitious plans and how to pay for them. It was an intimate meeting, as they usually are, before cameras and the press that included Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. The President's plans for infrastructure and American families are truly ambitious, and their costs are eye-popping. Four trillion dollars. That's trillion with a T. To pay for them, the federal government will have to add more funds to its coffers. It can do that through additional revenue, such as more taxes and new and higher tariffs. Or it can do that through additional borrowing, i.e. deficit spending, or through a combination of several means. To pay for at least part of his plans, Mr. Biden has decided to increase the federal government's revenue through taxes. Specifically, he's proposing to increase corporate taxes from 21% to 28% and to also increase capital gains taxes for high-income Americans. We could discuss the reaction of Republicans to the President's proposed tax hikes, and we could get into the weeds about the numbers, the percentages, and the disproportionate impact of taxes on different American families and on disparate American industries. We could do all of this, but then we asked a curious question, as we often do, about how do we get here? How did corporate taxes, and more peculiar still, income taxes, become a casual topic of conversation for us Americans? Like, oh yeah, i got to pay my taxes next week. When did that start? Did our great-great-great-grandfathers pay taxes, like we do? To better understand the history of America's love-hate relationship with taxes, we spoke with Dr. David Thompson, an assistant professor of American history at Sacred Heart University in Connecticut. In his research, Dr. Thompson focuses on the Civil War period, including the financing of that war through the sale of government bonds. He recently received a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. He's a recipient of numerous fellowships and has won many awards and honors. He's also a contributor to prominent publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe magazine. Dr. Thompson has an upcoming book titled Bonds of War, How Civil War Financial Agent Sold the World on the Union. His book will be published in the spring of 2022 with University of North Carolina Press. Links to his website and academic homepage are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Thompson and I peel the history behind this news. So, Professor Thompson, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. I'm, I'm 
particularly excited to speak with you about President Biden's tax policy because of your research focus on the history of capitalism in America. So, so let's start from the beginning, taxes and their impact on products and businesses go to the heart of America's history. <laughs> no, no taxes without no taxes without representation, right? That's what right. it starts. Yeah. So, um, and I think, and, you know, I grew up uh, in New England. I still live in New England. So I think because of the close the heart of the revolution. Yeah. You, you know, we learn about it a lot, right? It's, it's, it's something that you pick up on from a very early age. And of course, no taxation without representation is this, you know, it's canon, right? It's it's yes. just this very quick phrase that you get. And, you know, of course, like many things in history, it's it's more complicated than just a catchy phrase. Um, you know, it's really important to note that without representation part. Because um, at the end of yes. the day, you know, this tea is getting thrown in the harbor if we, if we want to take it there, right, with the Boston Tea Party, not because there is just some sort of tax uh, period, but because of the fact that you've got this taxation occurring without representation for the colonies uh, back in London. Um, all loads of other colonies for the British at the time are being taxed. They're being taxed at, frankly, far higher rates than the American colonies. Um, people who live in Britain are being taxed at roughly 26 times the rate of people in the colonies. Um, it's that lack of representation that really irks, you know, not all, right, but, but many uh, of the American colonists. And so you, you get this anti-tax story um, that some date back, obviously, to the 18th century, to the revolution. And, you know, of, of course, there were certain individuals back then who are fervently just anti-tax, but there are many who are looking at it more from that representation standpoint, the fact that there isn't that kind of representation in London. You bring up a fascinating point that I bet you a lot of a lot of Americans don't notice. We were, as a colony, we were taxed less than other British colonies and even the British people and themselves and the British yeah. uh, Isles, yeah, absolutely. right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you if you know somebody were to read some of the source material um, that's coming out of London, that's coming out of the rest of England, for that matter. It just doesn't have to emanate strictly from London. You know, there's there's a lot of commentary on this at the time that, you know, people in England, frankly, are getting fairly frustrated with certain American colonists thinking, we're asking you to do the bare minimum here. We'll um, pay more than you. Right. And, you know, the, this is obviously in the shadow of, you know, the French and Indian War, the Seven Years War, however we want which to Which had just it, happened several is, years previous. Correct. And so they want to, you know, pay off this massive war debt that's accumulated. And they said, you know, part of this war was fought quite literally on your land, right? George Washington fights yeah, for the British course, yeah. in this war. So, you know, they're saying, we're just asking you to essentially uh, pay uh, your fair share, right? If we want to use some language that you hear today, right? That that idea of paying your fair share. Fair share, asking, yes. Yeah, they're asking them to pay a fair share here uh, when it comes to uh, merely covering war costs and you get this huge pushback. Did we look... Did we look like spoiled children to them, ingrates? Here we fought a war for you uh, to keep you away from the out of the hands of the French and their Native American allies. Is, is that how they perceived us? I mean, that's certainly the perception for many, right? And I think in, in, in England, and I think certainly within politics, right? So, so if we're talking about the House of Parliament, absolutely. I, I and you touched on something that's always uh, been a question for me. Uh, the Stamp Act, which is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's literally, uh, you have to have the stamps on official paper, so there's a tax on that, and then, and of course, the, the, the tax on tea and what have you. So, yes, any tax is a burden, but they weren't, it, they weren't as, as onerous as you and I would think now, based on what you're saying. No. And I think, you know, there's there's certain taxes that get a lot more play, if you will, than others for the time period. Um, you know, there, there's certain taxes on things like glass. And so people will brick over windows. And if you drive around New England to this day, you will still see some very old homes that are still bricked over in certain areas. 
Um, they used to have windows. They removed them because it didn't matter if the glass was already affixed that you were, it's, you know, almost like a property tax in a sense, kind of a subset to a property tax. So people say, well, if you're going to tax me for the glass window panes here, I'm just going to remove them. That's um, wild. I never knew that. So we revolt against the mother country and we separate ourselves. We win our independence. And here we are several years after we win independence. We have an open rebellion on our hand about, of all things, taxes. Uh, being from New England, I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, right? yeah. So, yeah, with Shays Rebellion, it's it's once again Massachusetts, right? Those yeah. Folks <laughs> Where it started from, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so you get Shays Rebellion. Um, and what, you know, really sets things apart, first and foremost, you know, named after Daniel Shays, this isn't a nobody. This isn't some kind of random person. Who was who, he? Leads. I mean, he was a staffer for Washington. So this is somebody who was, you know, known within, you know, certainly continental army circles. Oh, wow. So he was, yeah. he was part of the Revolutionary yeah. War. Yeah. So, you know, you, you don't see, you know, this isn't Alexander Hamilton, right? Yeah, this yeah, isn't yeah. somebody who, who, who rises to acclaim and becomes a cabinet member. But he, you know, this isn't also just some random farmer who's going to lead a movement of several thousand people uh, in Massachusetts that fundamentally gets around to issues, uh, again, of debt and debt collection. And the fact that more and more individuals, without getting too into the weeds, but more and more individuals um, are being forced to pay taxes, particularly property taxes, in uh, hard currency, that lines of credit are, are no longer acceptable. And this is something that's kind of being passed down. You know, part of my research always looks at the interconnectedness of these markets, whether it's the 19th century, even the late 18th century. But, you know, London merchants are no longer extending lines of credit to individuals in Boston or Philadelphia or New York or Baltimore, uh, for that matter. Um, they're now expecting um, payment you know, earlier, right? They, they, they're not going to wait until the end of the season, so to speak. And so these pressures are kind of felt uh, throughout the colonies, but particularly in some of these northern colonies um, that are so reliant on this merchant network and particularly these transatlantic ties. Some of these, so Shea is a veteran of the Revolutionary War. Correct. Um, I'd read once in one source that because the government, the newly formed government, which still is not the U.S. government, we haven't gone there yet, these 13 uh, sort of Confederate states, if you will, not the Confederacy, uh, but the Confederate states, they paid some of the veterans uh, in in land. Is, is, is So uh, am I yeah. right on that? Yeah, so that's that's one way that they get paid. Um, because of course there's there's issues with just paying soldiers during the war period. Of course, yeah. Um, and of course the the continental uh government is gonna churn out all of these currency continentals, um, which depreciates in value, of course, the more that you're just running essentially a printing mm -hmm. press here. And so in some individuals are paid in land, um, but others are also just paid in bonds. Um, and of course, this becomes an issue after the war ends because these are continental, these are, think of them as national bonds, if you will, that they don't believe, these individuals, they don't believe that the bonds will ever be honored or certainly not for face value. And so speculators start to gobble them up. Um, and then all of a sudden we get to Hamilton's plan. I'm not hoping not getting ahead of ourselves here, but no, Hamilton's plan of, you know, full funding and assumption you know, it leads to, well, we have to actually honor all the Revolutionary War debt. And so you see that tension playing out between the likes of Hamilton and Jefferson almost immediately, because, of course, the way it looks, whether or not this is true is something historians still debate today, but it looks like Hamilton's in the pocket of, you know, Wall Street elites, right? If we want to use kind of a temporary <laughs> There was actually a Wall Street back yeah, then. there was, yeah. yeah. And, and so, but these individuals, right? Um, have Hamilton's ear, and and they're the ones that are buying these bonds for, um, at times, fractions um, of what they're worth, um, because these veterans think, well, you know, some money's better than no money, right? If they think that the, the bonds are never going to be honored, um, or, or certainly not for, you know, close to face value. 
uh, that it's better to get something than nothing at all. And then, of course, Hamilton has this make sure that this debt's honored and, and it creates part of this divide between, um, you know, essentially financiers, merchant class and so-called, you know, the agricultural sector and the yeoman farmer. You bring up a really interesting dynamic here from the experience of the Continental Army and Revolutionary years, all these veterans who are paid part in land, part, 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 part in uh, bond, which none of none of which are are hard currency, so they can't really pay their taxes or you know pay for milk or what have you. Um, it, from that experience, they're saying, and I, I appreciate I'm rephrasing what you just said, but I think there's an important point here that okay, you paid us in all of this, it's worthless. Someone wants to pay us. Uh, a penny on a dollar, whatever, five cents on a dollar, run, run and, and cash it. And then all of a sudden Hamilton comes and actually honors it. Are these guys just irked? I mean, I'll just use the the phrase that part of me. Are they pissed? I could have yeah. got a dollar on that. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think that's that's partly what you see. It plays a role in things like Shay's Rebellion, right? It is not yeah. by any means a driving force here, but um, th there's this conception, right, that there's there's two worlds already emerging, one of kind of a wealthier class in, in the metropole, right? And Massachusetts here is the example, right? Boston is kind of this merchant center and these Western Massachusetts farmers, which at that time obviously is, is really in the sticks, frankly, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Springfield, Massachusetts is not a big drive today. Yeah. Back then you might as well been, you know, on your way to Mars. Um, it, it's really far. <laughs> it's really far from Boston. Yeah. And so this divide occurs. And I think part of what kind of exemplifies the whole thing is, you know, who helps to suppress this rebellion is a privately funded militia force that the oh, wealthy boy. merchants in Boston essentially say, let's pony up some money because we need to stop, you know, the rabble from uh, causing this unrest. And we need to reopen courts and start collecting um, debts and things like that. And so if we need to invest in order to make this happen, so be it. So be it. Hamilton comes and, and, and along with uh, President Washington, that revolutionary hero, we have a government. We have a new country, essentially, uh, formed. Uh, and you know, we're so you and I are so sort of smoothly and facile in a facile fashion talking about, oh, they paid the debt and all of that. They honored it. Where did all this money come from? How how did the federal government pay for itself? Are, are we going back to taxes again, albeit now with representation? Is that what's happening? So I think, you know, the first thing to be really mindful of and, and it, it's certainly the case, at least up until the Civil War is that when we talk about the federal government, this thing's tiny, you know, tiny. it's, it's, it, it's small. I mean, I can't give you an exact number of employees, but, um, you know, most of them are partisan appointments. I mean, we shouldn't be thinking of Washington DC as it becomes known as this huge behemoth, right. Of all of these different agencies. That's more of a 20th century development. You see early vestiges of it with the civil war and the kind of you know, carries on from there. But it's a small government, which means the budget doesn't need to be huge. Um, because, you you know, you're not creating some massive standing army, of course, right, that's a lesson from the revolution, right, we really don't have a massive standing army. For a long time, get, actually, for a long time, right? The, yeah. end of the Civil War, it's 16,000 people um, in the entire <laughs> army. Um, that's that all, that 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 sounds laughable. Sixteen right? Yeah, yeah, it's nothing, and that includes people who are going to resign and go and serve in the Confederacy. Yeah. So you know, you don't need a huge revenue stream, is what I'm trying to get at here. And so Hamilton's mindful of that, but by the same token, he recognizes you obviously need to raise funds. Um, and he well, starts how does to he lay do the, it. Well, he so he starts to lay the groundwork in the Federalist Papers, right? And so Federalist Number Twelve, he actually lays out. How do you finance a government? Um, and th this is one of the Federalist Papers that he writes uh, personally. Um, and for him, you know, he actually lays out what occurs, right? He's, he essentially says, uh, you need this to be at the national level, first and foremost, to pull this money in. You can't just delegate to states and say, you need to contribute X percent 
based on your population or landmass, whatever metric you want to use. This needs to be at a national level. It's not going to be an income tax. That's not the best way forward. Wait, the he says that actually? It's not going to yeah. be like that? Yeah. I mean, he, he says that direct taxation, um, especially with something like income, is not feasible. You know, he's not necessarily saying don't do it. He's just trying to imply the challenges uh, that something like that would would present. And so for Hamilton, the big path forward is land sales, which becomes one of the biggest ways that the federal government raises funds. Uh, and, and secondly... And there was so much land to sell back yeah, then, and the, right? Right, right. And it's ever expanding if you think about um, things like the Louisiana Purchase, right? The land is going to accumulate further. Of course, we're not talking about who lives on that land, right? Who's, <laughs> who's being dispossessed. Oh, boy, but, yes. But it, there's lots of land. And, and the other thing, of course, is taxes on goods. So he's talking about, you know, tariffs, essentially, imports and exports. He, he emphasizes that it should be on imports, and that gets solidified, really, with the Constitution. So we get import tariffs as a way, you know, to raise money. And, and you know, this becomes one of the single biggest um, focal points, emphasis uh, for the United States government prior to the Civil War. If you go and read the debates in Congress, one of the things that gets discussed um, almost constantly, I think, is tariffs, right? It, it, it's it's one of these, it, there are these debates, right? And and it's it's somewhat akin to some of the debates we see today about like things like percentages, right? So we talk today about like what should be the income tax percentages, uh, what should be the cap, what should be at the top, what should be the different brackets, essentially. Uh, we see that with the tariffs by the time we get into the 1800s. There yeah, we talk about tariffs in context of trade wars, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, back then it had to do with essentially power, money uh, for the right. government. Yeah. Um, was there, we're going to get into civil war in a second, but you mentioned it. Did it create any geographic imbalances for when you had tariffs? Oh, absolutely. We start to see it, it's more certainly as we get closer to the war, it's, it's taking on greater sectional terms between North and South. Um, and I'd also include the West. Um, in that, I think uh, there's a lot of great scholarship coming out right now that we need to really reconsider the West as part of this story of the road to the Civil War. It's not just North and South. People live in places like California and Oregon yeah. and yeah. New Mexico, and, and they yeah. have a say in all of this. And a lot of them are Southern transplants. Um, and so most of that is becoming more of a geographical divide, a sectional divide, as opposed to a partisan divide. Um, and so by the time we get you know, ever closer to the Civil War, there is this conception that there's a desire for kind of a high tariff being put out there by on imports by Northerners um, and Southerners who say, hold on, uh -huh. a second. you know, that's not OK, because guess what? We're the ones who, you know, are sending cotton uh, abroad, right, using enslaved labor, but we're still sending it. And we're the and ones we, that get, we get the bill when, you know, we, we deliver goods. In, and they, in they, they probably raise tariffs on them on return. Yeah. For, oh, yeah. I see Europeans. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So um, you get huge transatlantic debates on tariffs, which is not we, the sexiest topic in the world, I recognize. Um, but you'd be surprised at how little has been written on it and how many colorful characters there are as part of that story. So I think it's a great untold story. You just set, the sub, set us up for another podcast episode. Yeah. I love that. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about how sources of revenue for our national government, the federal government, changed as we faced bigger crises yet and as our nation grew. We'll be back in a moment. Professor Thompson, in your scholarship, you specially focus on the Civil War era. And, and, and it's a crucial moment in our history, obviously. Uh, it's, it, its positive impact of ending slavery cannot be overstated. But the Civil War is also the impetus for so many other pivotal changes, one of them being sources of revenue for the U.S. government, right? The outlook, everything changed as of 1861 when uh, President Lincoln uh, entered the White House. 
Yeah, uh, it's undeniable. And of course, yes, this is my particular area of research. So this is a this is something that I, I have a keen interest in. Um, and the and the reality is that uh, we talked about this idea of a very small federal government existing uh, in the you know certainly the early republic and even the antebellum period, uh, not needing a whole bunch of money to operate. You know, in the 1830s, rather famously, the federal government pays off the national debt, right? <laughs> Believe that, uh, which you know people today, right, would, would yeah. I just want to emphasize for listeners or have you emphasize, we're not talking about the annual deficit. Deficit. We're talking about the debt, as in America owed nothing to nobody in the, I think it was 1835, right? Yeah. You know, That's it's wild. very brief, right? Yeah. It's not like it's going to be out for years here, but it is, it, it's a consequential moment, right? It is, um, and it, it runs counter a little bit to just a brief aside here, just it runs counter to uh, other nations in Europe, right? So European nations um, expect there to be a national debt. And, and a lot of this is obviously coming out of the Napoleonic Wars. And it's just, yes. it's a reality to them. And they look at the US and they say, the US has a culture that they don't want a national debt. And this is an example of it. Where right. is that culture um, today? <laughs> yeah, so it's you know it's it's a far cry from from where things go, but um and and the Civil War you know starts us down that road. So um, the United States government, you know, there's a special session of Congress in the summer of 1861, uh, obviously to contend with the fact that there is now a civil war. But a big part of it is how to actually finance this thing. Um, because, you know, the expectations are that this is going to be the largest war that certainly the United States has ever fought. Um, it's going to be on a scale and scope that no one in the Western world has seen. Um, certainly in, in recent eras, right, the Crimean War occurred the decade before. That's like the closest kind of metric. Um, but, you know, you've got new technology, things cost money, the federal government's super small, the army, the navy are super small. These things cost money. And so we get our first income tax out of the American Civil War, right? It's the Revenue Act of 1861. Um, I will point out, right, that the federal government essentially pays for the war through taxes. Uh, they issue, you know, a new national currency, greenbacks, and they issue bonds, which is my, you know, true love. I've got a new book coming out next spring on bonds in the Civil War, and that's about close to three quarters of the war is funded through these bond issues. Um, but is, there is, is there, uh, Professor Thompson, more confidence in our national government's bonds? Of course, it's been 80 years since the Revolutionary War, right? Or is there right. still jitters? Um, it's, it's not so much. Uh, there are definitely some jitters, I should say, um, especially in the early days of the war. People don't know where it's going to go. Right. And, yeah. um, and a big part of it, it's not at the federal level, but it's at the state level. Um, and this is a new project for me, but in the 1840s, a bunch of States North and South default on debt payments. Uh, and some States actually repudiate and never honor it. Mississippi is kind of the classic example. Um, it was, it went all the way to the Supreme court as recently as the 1990s that there are still people trying to get money from the state of Mississippi for bonds that the state of Mississippi 18, issued. 1840s? If, well, the bonds are issued in the late 1830s. Um, and there's an organization in London that exists until the 1980s to try to get these bonds honored as part of, there's the Foreign Bondholder Association. So they essentially represent British um, clients. <laughs> Professor Thompson, I just want to get yeah. this timeline right. Yeah. Many states in America, I know this is a little bit of an aside, but I love yeah. this. States in America issue bonds, state bonds in the 1830s. And mm -hmm. from what you're telling me, British, it's, some of it is sold off internationally. Yes. Right? <laughs> so that's 1830s. Up to late 20th century, the British are still trying to collect on that. Um, it's the British, it's also the government of Morocco is trying to collect on some of it as well. So, um, it's, it's all over Any the luck place. there? Uh, no, um, <laughs> they, they don't, but it, and cause there's, so, so 
so I bring it up. It is a fascinating aside, of course. That's but 150 I, years I, or so, yeah. But I bring it up as this is impacting people's thinking in the Civil War, right? That's yeah. not, that. that is recent history. We may so buy this union bond or whatever it's called, and they may default. That's what right. you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. And um, same thing with Confederate bonds, by the way. They're going to yeah. issue Confederate bonds because, by the way, one of the most vocal supporters of repudiation in the 1840s is Jefferson Davis, future president of the Confederacy. He says it's totally okay in the 1840s to repudiate Mississippi debt, his home state. So, um, <laughs> and then he has the gall to come and say, "Here, buy my bond." Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, and so, the, and so the federal government actually uses it against them or attempt to during the Civil War. But, anyways, uh, so there are these bond issues during the war. It's a couple billion dollars worth in 1860s money, so it's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, but there's, you know, there is a new income tax. Um, and it evolves over the course of the war. It's going to be tweaked, right? So it's initially a flat tax for people making more than $800 a year of 3%. Um, your average annual income for a northerner is, is somewhere around, you know, the numbers vary a little bit depending on the occupation, but it's about $350. So if you've got a medium income of $350 and you're only taxing people above $800, you know, you're looking at certainly your wealthier individuals, and it's a fairly small tax, right? 3% income tax is not that much. Um, over the course of the war, it gets amended, right? The, the number gets dropped to $600, where the income tax kicks in, um, and they actually create brackets, if you will, um, culminating in um, the top bracket of somebody who's making more than $10,000 in a year, you've got to pay uh, 10% once you get above 10,000. So we see I, this kind of I love evolution these numbers, the by the way. Uh, I yeah. love these numbers. $800, that's less than a brand new iPhone, right? Right, right. So it's, <laughs> Go ahead. Um, but you know, somebody making $10,000 a year in the 1860s is doing quite well for themselves. Yep. Um, and so, but, but the point is, this is, I don't want to call it like a 1% tax, right? But it is a tax by and large on wealthier, individuals. Um, I do, of course, love the fact, you know, and this came about in my own research. Um, so April 1862, the federal government um, takes over New Orleans, which is the largest city in the Confederacy uh, at the time of the war. It's the only southern city that is in the top 10 population wise at the time of the Civil War. And within two weeks, they're collecting income tax in New Orleans. Um, the, the, the union. Yeah, which I think is, you know, quite something, right? That like the, that level of efficiency. Exactly. Like, um, they need it. And, and, and of course, the big thing I always wondered looking at some of these names, and I know some of these people are Confederate sympathizers. Are they reluctantly paying or are they seeing the tide turn in the city that they live in? And what's, you know, what's the best way for me to demonstrate loyalty now? to get on the good side, right? Of the winning yeah. team here, at least, well, I'll pay my taxes, some of them buy bonds. Um, and so, you know, it's it's one of these really interesting- Bonds uh, where legal tender, are, are, are bonds still legal tender? Can you pay your taxes with US bonds now? I don't think you can anymore. Yeah, I, mean, I don't I, think I, you I don't know anymore. the exact details yeah. of that, but I, I don't think so anymore. Um, so, so, so these he, bonds are really important. And yeah. And, and when you, there is a tariff, of course, as well during the war, um, and it gets jacked up. It's, it's on certain goods. It's 47%, um, is the rate wow. by, the, by 1864. Um, and this, this tariff gets passed. It's one of the first things really passed by Congress, you know, Congress by 1861, 1862. There's this whole wish list of things that Northerners want to pass uh -huh. and Southerners have been around to obstruct it. And now, and now they're not all they all left Congress so that, you know, the Pacific Railway Act, where we get the Transcontinental Railroad, we get um, the moral tariff, we get the land grant act for colleges. So a lot of, you know, state university systems in this country date back to the 1860s. That's where they get their start. Um, you know, the list goes on. But like, essentially, there's a wish list for northerners um, and especially northern Republicans, which are a new party, Republican parties you know, in its infancy, it's less than a decade yep. old by the time of the Civil War, they're passing all these things. And and the moral tariff is one of them because they've wanted this kind of increase in the tariff for a while now. 
Now it's not bringing in tons of revenue, um, you know, relative to the pre-war years. Um, and there were even issues with tariff collection in the years leading up to the war, um, because Southerners were refusing to forward, forward the money to Washington mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. to the treasury. So, so um, you, you have Republic, <laughs> you have the irony of Republicans actually taxing the wealthy here yeah. and bringing the income tax. It starts, um, but it doesn't go on forever. Something happens no. there. It oh, so in, yeah. Well, in the 1870s, it's they decide not to renew it um, because the, the the kind of the language that's used at the time is it was a wartime exigency, right? Like this was a necessity uh, of the Civil War, and the war is now over, uh, and we are you know again selling land. We have tariffs, right? The sources of revenue are there. Um, the 1870s and 1880s witnesses all of this refinancing of the Civil War debt. Um, and so, of course, when I talk about Civil War bonds, a lot of people say, like, when did they actually get paid off? And the answer is, like, it's kind of hard to say because they got refinanced so many times into progressively lower interest rates. So, um, you know, sometime in the 1890s is probably um, the, the best answer. But there isn't like a day that you can point to. Yeah. And all civil war debts paid off. So um, they don't view that they don't see a need uh, to have um, that income tax uh, exist in the 1870s, 1880s. Now they're going to change their tune by the time we get to the 1890s and you start to see a real deliberate push. Before we get to the 1890s, sure. uh, you know, when you were saying in the 1870s, um, they don't see the need for the tax anymore. Well, first, because uh, because of the language that this is a this 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 uh, taxes for the exigent uh, circumstances of a war. But this this sort of begs the question: Was did the size of the government begin to decline, shrink after the Civil War? So yes and no. Relative to Civil War peak, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but we also see the creation of new federal agencies some that always happens after a war yeah, right yeah and, and during the war frankly for that matter too um and so they're not huge behemoths of agencies but you're going to come out of the civil war with larger you know larger agencies um the army is slightly larger than it was in the pre-civil war uh the antebellum period especially the eve of the war the navy is slightly bigger um, and so these things cost money, right? Um, so you, you do have a slightly larger footprint. Um, one of the you know places that is going to be a home to many government workers, ironically, is Ford's Theater uh, after the Civil War. So the place where Lincoln is assassinated in April of 1865 becomes a government office um, for a very long time. Um, before it's eventually rehabbed back into a theater, which is what it is today. I've been um, there. I've seen it as a museum. kind of a museum, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but it was home to many, uh, mostly treasury officials um, after, the, after the war. Um, the, the expansion of the government. The yeah. So, so you're seeing a little bit of it. it, it it's, you know, mm. it's, you know, Mission Creek, right? You're seeing like a little bit of the <laughs> government kind of expanding after the Civil War. It's a far cry again from the 20th century, but it is it is growing. So, what happens in the 1890s? You you were starting to tell us, uh, you know, 1870s they get rid of the income tax, and then there comes the 1890s. Yeah. So, you know, a big part of it, of course, is, is context is everything here. There's a massive financial panic. Um, you know, really a Great Depression um, before the Great Depression in 1893. And the perception here is that wealthier individuals, particularly wealthy businesses, are at, at fault here. And so there is an increasing uh, appetite, political will, however you might want to describe it, to tax businesses, that they have all of this excess wealth and that they should be contributing essentially towards federal coffers more than they do. Um, and and is to just couch this for myself so I get a better feel for this. This is a time of the big barons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, so, like yeah, it's, it's it's the Rockefellers. It's okay. the, you know, it's 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 you know, it's it's the Gilded Age, right? This is where we're heading into this okay. era of 
what for many is kind of obscene wealth, right? And great, yeah. great wealth disparities. And so this was viewed as kind of one method, right, of how you actually target this wealth. Uh, and, and, and it gains traction, right? This is the era of populism, right? You've got these really angry farmers that think that they're being um, disenfranchised. You know, we get calls for things like direct election of U.S. senators, which ultimately, of course, becomes a reality. Uh, that no longer are senators going to essentially be plucked by state legislatures who determine who's going to Washington. Um, income tax is part of that. You know, the graduated income tax is part of the demand and corporate taxes as well. It's it's the lower echelons, socioeconomically speaking, echelons of society, if you will, that are actually demanding an income tax because they want to slap that on the wealthier classes. Am I, uh, did I summarize that correctly? Or? Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, there, there, of course, there are middle-class reformers. This is kind of early vestiges of the progressive era, right? Okay. Um, where we see reformers coming in. So it's not just, you know, kind of a, a working class idea. If you think about it in that context, um, it's opposed by Republicans by now, right? Republicans have become very cozy with these businesses. So they're not really inclined to support this level of a corporate uh, income tax or a corporate tax. Um, and it, it does get passed in 1894. It's around for the entirety of one year. It goes one year? Forward. Yeah, Supreme Court, uh, 1895. The, the general assumption was that this thing would probably get struck down by the courts. Um, and so even by the end, you get some Republicans who vote in favor of it because, you know, they don't want to necessarily come out as the guy that, you know, they, they, they see the political wins and they realize that there's some element of in order to um, stay in the good graces of certain state legislators that they need to, to vote in favor of this. Um, but it gets, you know, you know, rocketed up the docket for the uh, Supreme Court. And in 1895, 5-4 decision. Um, they're going to essentially declare the corporate tax unconstitutional, that it's a direct tax um, on these businesses, um, which is illegal under the current mechanisms of the Constitution. What, what case was that? Do you have a case? Yes, it's Pollock versus oh, yes. Farmers Loan and Trust Company. 1895. Again, 5-4 decision. So it's not a, you know, it's a narrow decision. So how do we get uh, corporate tax and income tax? The Supreme Court spoke. Right. But like many Supreme Court decisions, right, they, they strike something down, but they kind of give a door, right, for you to have an end around um, uh -huh. to, to give it another pass. So 1895, they're saying it's unconstitutional because it's a direct tax. And so Congress comes back to it by 1909, they pass a new corporate tax, which is an excise tax. So it's, it's not a, it's a different kind of tax um, that falls within the um, confines of, of what's allowed in the constitution. Um, and, you know, there, there's so much going on at this point. You've got the, the splintering of the Republican party at this point, people like Teddy Roosevelt, who are breaking away. Um, there's, there is a much greater appetite for taxing in general, um, not only at the corporate level businesses, but we also are going to see um, an income tax be solidified with the 16th Amendment to the Constitution. Wait, um, uh, the Constitution gets amended for taxes? Yep. So you mean we did yeah. this to ourselves? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 19, 1913. So a um, little over 100 years ago, uh, the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, um, which I always, you know, I always like to emphasize to my students, you know, the Reconstruction Amendments um, are, you know, the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. And then we have this kind of lull. And I always find it fascinating that the next amendment to the Constitution, um, decades later, is a federal income tax that's that, 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 that this is it. now allowed um again it's not huge right it is a um it's a progressive tax right it's a graduated tax um but you know when it's initially passed it impacts three percent 
of the U.S. population. So we're not talking 3%. about something. wow. Yeah, so we're not talking about something. You know, it's not a one percent tax, um, or you could view it that way, right? It's a one yeah. percent tax that impacts three percent of the population. So although we now see that there is a income tax, we're not talking about something that is impacting uh, scores of people. That's going to change very quickly. Um, but we also I mean, see, we'll, we'll, yeah, and we'll get to I, that. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll be back after a short break to talk about the 20th century, where we're going to, uh, the century in which massive social programs bloomed in America. Taxes grew along with them, right? We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Now, Professor Thompson, we got done talking about the colossal changes in our economy and tax system that started with the Civil War and continued to 1913, the 16th Amendment and all that you just mentioned. But this this sort of piqued my interest. 1913 was, in fact, not the culmination of these changes. It was more like a landing in a staircase <laughs> where we keep on going up higher levels and different forms of new... Is, is, am I in the ballpark the way I view this? Yeah, and and I think it's it's the beginnings of again just a larger governmental, and the financial infrastructure is changing too. Right, nineteen thirteen, we have the creation of the Federal Reserve as well. So we're seeing this entity that is once again the product of a financial panic. Nineteen oh seven, we have a massive financial panic in the United States that is essentially uh, supported and and propped up in terms of the the economy by J.P. Morgan. He infamously has a whole bunch of New York City financiers over to his house. He locks the door in the room and essentially says, we're going to figure this out because um, we're all going down unless we prop up um, some of these smaller banks. That's like Jamie Dimon calling yeah. Jeff Bezos and you know Bill Gates and Mark Zitz, some of these yeah. big guys and say, we're going to rescue the country. Yeah. So and, and, and so when I talk about the 2008 financial crisis in some of my classes, I say, you know, this isn't kind of a first iteration, right, that yeah. you're seeing the, these kind of, you know, bailouts um, by financiers. Um, and J.P. Morgan even goes so far as to call up uh, ministers, priests. Um, this is a, on a Saturday. He had these meetings. He said on Sunday, your sermons are all going to be about uh, essentially the stability of the American economy. So get out the Bible, find some stuff that's going to work for you. Um, and make it work. Um, and by the way, you know, he emphasized in particular congregations where he knew he had certain financiers who would be there who were on the fence. So he wants the message getting to these these individuals, however he can get it to them, um, whether it's, you know, from the pulpit or not. So we're in the 20th century. Right. What's happening with taxes? What's happening with our governments? Well, yeah. Rev- and so, you know, first and foremost, we have World War One, and that and that really kind of sets the table for drastic tax increases. Again, similar to the Civil War, right? That this is viewed as kind of a wartime exigency. But in you know 1916, the the top rate of the income tax um, it goes from 15 percent to 67 percent. Wow. Um, and then in 1918, we see it uh, move up to 77 percent. So, you know, this is certainly substantial. Wow. Yeah. These are huge uh, income taxes. Now, again, there are exceptions to them, right? There there are loopholes, if you will. Um, There's also at the beginning of World War One, we start to see the emergence of excess profit taxes um, and um, which actually got some traction. Are are profits ever excess? Well, yeah, (laughs) certainly that's what some companies would say. But this actually got some traction in the last year. 
right? That there was some calls, obviously, from those of certain political persuasions to kind of reinvigorate this with COVID, that certain companies, right, were, you know, insanely profitable over the last year, and that Mm -hmm. this was a way to kind of offset kind of some of the challenges and then things like, you know, the COVID relief bills and things like that. So we've seen it before being used by Congress. Um, And so we see these emerge, of course, with the war itself. Um, They're going to get cut back down um, during the uh, 1920s and kind of the roaring 20s, right, of the, the Hoover era. Andrew Mellon is Secretary of the Treasury. He's he's big on cutting uh, income taxes to the degree that he can. There's still a top rate, though, of 63%. So we're, we're a far cry from, wow. you know, having a, a top rate that's, you know, in the 30s, for instance, right, which just becomes the reality by the 1980s. Um, and then we get to World War II. And the top rate's 94%. If you're making more than uh, a taxable income, I should say, of over $200,000 during World War II, you are looking at a 94% rate once you get above 200 grand. You better have a good tax accountant. And many do, right? <laughs> um, there, there's, lots of it, there's lots of exemptions here in World War II. Again, it's on income. So what, what do a lot of people do? Of course, they pile all this money into the stock market. Um, they, they move it elsewhere so that it's not viewed as income. income yeah. In, in that kind of traditional sense. Uh, Professor Thompson, uh, any, any discussion uh, uh, about uh, our tax system during the 20th century and up to now, that itself is several episodes and treatises are written on those. What I'm wondering now that you 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 got to World War II, that means we went through the Depression, uh, chronologically speaking, sure. the Great Depression, and we're and we're in World War II. Uh, FDR is still president. This is, I guess, what I want for me to understand. Our sort of the takeaway for our listeners too. Do we as a nation enter a new era in which social programs really pile on? the need for more revenue for government. And because you, we were talking about sort of, uh, you know, the Great Depression and everything, I'm thinking Social Security and the Medicare comes by, by Lyndon, jo- with, uh, Lyndon Johnson's presidency. Is that a fair assessment that that is a big change? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously this kind of transcending moment here where, you know, whether it's Social Security Administration um, being a, a new program created in the New Deal era. You know, a lot of money, obviously, during the New Deal era is put towards programs that were viewed, right, alphabet soup of agencies, right, the Works Progress Administration, the Triple C, the Civilian Conservation Corps, all these different entities that are created during um, the Depression as a means to kind of spend out of the Depression, right? And economists mm-hmm. and historians have yes. debated to this day whether or not they worked, right? But the, at the Friedman end of the day- and Keynes and all correct. of that. They, yeah. they, but at the end of the day, yeah. the money's spent, right? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and then you get World War II, which is this tremendous expense uh, for the federal government who's fighting this global war, right? Not only in Europe, but obviously throughout the Pacific and beyond. Uh, and so how do you pay for this? And of course, we're getting into deficit spending becoming more of a um, acceptable entity, right? As we move beyond the uh, civil war, it's becoming more and more of just the fact that the reality, we will have a national debt, um, that it's going to be something that we will live with. Um, some even try to pivot it into this idea that it can actually be used to our benefit, right? That it's a blessing. There's <laughs> a famous um, essay written in the 1870s about how national debt is not a burden, it is a blessing, right? And they kind of go into this long story about how it's a good thing. Um, as long they as should, they should dust off that essay again yeah. these days. Yeah. Right? And they'd have to scratch out a few of the words um, and, and put in trillion instead of yeah. like billions. Um, but, you know, we, we, by the time we get into, that post-World War II era and, and the Great Society under Johnson, um, you're seeing you know, money being put into other programs. Medicare is, is a great program. You mentioned Medicaid, um, originally a federal program, right, in terms of exclusively a federal program. Um, also the military, right? We have this massive standing military 
after World War II, right? Eisenhower, uh, you know, famous World War II general and then a president, bemoans what he calls the rise of the military industrial complex. And it's, you know, built out of World War II. It's this new environment of a Cold War era. Um, and so, you know, we have standing armies in places like Korea and Germany um, that, that are going to stay there, right? They're still there. Um, and so we have a much more global presence kind of as, you know, whether you want to call it like the world's police force or not, yeah. right? We're yeah. there. Um, and, and so the money has to go into these things. The national security apparatus just explodes. And, that, and that's another huge expenditure. So the skinny the of it government. is that we have new social programs that prior to um, the 1930s and 1940s, we had just had not thought about, I mean, thought of implementing the way we did. Uh, and also new role globally after World War II that really changes uh, the size of our government and its need for revenue and taxes becoming widespread. Um, Professor Thompson, uh, stay with me as, as we get into perspective. Thank you so much. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Professor Thompson, for the perspective, I want us to touch on an area about which you're quite passionate and as it comes across in this conversation, the history of capitalism. And let's just start with the Civil War, your special focus. And based on what you were telling me, I want to lay it out this way so I understand it. We have taxes that come on in the Civil War, more than prior decades in America's history. Correct. But then after the Civil War, the Industrial Revolution in America becomes really full throttle. Uh, you know the date better than I think 1866, 18, late 1860s, what have you. So you have taxes and you have the capitalism at play. Is this just... What's the correlation? Is this just a sort of uh, uh, coincidental overlap, or did taxes play any role in America's capitalism in those days? They they undeniably play a role, right? I think they they are negative, positive. I mean, I I leave that in part up to your listeners. <laughs> I I mean, you know, taxes are uh, in part uh, a requisite of you know, society, a functioning society. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting by the time we get to the end of the 1800s, you know, the U.S. is the world's largest economy, right? And of so course. you have to think yeah. about that. By the time we get to 1900, it's the largest economy on the globe. Um, obviously, you have throngs of individuals immigrating to the United States, largely from Europe, but not exclusively. And uh, there's this sense that, you know, Obviously, the roads in America are paved with gold, right? And there are all these like highfalutin mm -hmm. tales of why people should go to America and they come and that people can, um, you know, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and, you know, that there's a lot of possibility here. But the reality is, um, as the country expands, um, as uh, needs intensify, um, you know, there, there are certain costs that are born. Um, and some of this in the past had been shouldered by private relief societies that had been set up in cities and states. Um, and so when, when people talk about things like Medicare and, and other kind of social welfare programs that emerge in the 20th century, what I like to tell my students is it's not that these programs never existed before. It's just they were very kind of a patchwork system that relied on local charitable aid societies, private donations, and the like. And so now it's just being something that's kind of just codified, right? That, that the yeah. federal government stepping in and saying, we have a role here, right? And this is, it's very much an international story, I'd argue, in the sense that other nations are wrestling with this at the time. And perhaps, you know, one of the greatest examples of this 
of course, is debates over a national healthcare system right at the end of World War II, which the U.S. has that debate. It has it in the 40s. It has it again in the 50s. The debate for a national healthcare system went all the way back, back that then. far. Because yeah, that's, you know, the national healthcare system in Britain, NHS, is, is created right at this time, right? These are not programs created in the 70s or 80s. They, they're, they're products of World War II. And so there's a, a culture here, I guess you could say, right, on a global scale or certainly a Western scale of looking at what is the proper role of government in society. Um, and certainly certain um, proponents of that kind of world are saying that, you know, these things are going to cost money and, and taxes are one way of doing it. And it's either it's income taxes, it's corporate taxes. It's also, right, this is the era of where we start to see capital gains taxes, right? So yeah. we're not only going to, we're going to tax uh, the wealth that you are accumulating um, in the market, so to speak. As well. Yeah, your investments. Yeah. Um, in, in your opinion, Professor Thompson, and I appreciate that this is outside the strict scope of history, but nevertheless, your opinion matters because you're, you, you are an expert and you've studied this. So in your opinion, how truly capitalistic is America still now that we collect so much taxes? I'm picturing in my mind's eye uh, traditional weighing scales with two plates, and I'm wondering which one is lower, the, the taxation and social programs or uh, the, 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 the plate with capitalism in it? If this was the 1890s, probably the plate with capitalism would be much lower. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, this is, this is one of the fundamental debates of our time, right? Is, you know, is, is the United States, I would, I would argue that we are uh, inherently a capitalistic nation right now. I wouldn't say it's less. I wouldn't, I don't know if I would say it's more, but I wouldn't say we are less capitalistic now. Um, you know, we see these kind of natural evolutions over time um, where capital is expended. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's one of these stories, you know, when I teach a class on the history of American capitalism, right? It's not just a story of natural progression of, of this kind of triumphant narrative, right? It is stories of tremendous development and growth punctuated by huge financial panics and huge financial disasters. Yeah. And I think we are entering an era now um, that is looking at how is this economic system going to work um, in a, a, a new type of economy, right? The gig economy and things like, yeah. you know, it, it, it kind of gets us into, right, how is it going to, you know, how are we going to navigate that? And, and obviously, um, you've got two political parties who are looking at it very differently. Um, and, 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 and like, how do you solve the problem? Uh, if you think there's a problem, yeah. right? So for some who may say there's not really a problem, um, or their problem, you know, might be obviously the polar opposite of, of someone from the other side. So, you know, I think we're, we're just entering into here a new chapter of capitalism. Um, and I think about this a lot because I've, it's been a couple of years since I taught my history of American capitalism class. And at the end of the course, I always try to kind of project like what I think issues are going to be. I'm not trying to predict the future, but mm -hmm. just kind of what are the new things that uh, U.S. Is, is going to contend with. And, you know, certainly the last time I taught it was really looking at, you know, what is the future of things like the gig economy, right? And these kind of contingent workforces, which are just becoming larger and larger for certain companies. Um, you know, I could not have told you, you know, that I would have predicted that we would have something like the Robin Hood phenomenon, right? And like GameStop <laughs> and all this I, stuff. I think most people right? couldn't have foretold. You know, right? but like, yeah. so this is, you know, the democratization, right, if you will, of, of yeah. this uh, stock market. So um, I think it's another chapter um, in our nation's history that- A has, fascinating topic, actually. This, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it, and it's, it's this tension playing out yeah. between lots of different um, agents and factors and, you know, where it goes, um, you know, in part time will tell, um, but it's, it's, we're moving into, into that new era as we head into properly, I guess, the 21st century where we've been in it for now for a few years. Yeah. But, um, it's hard to believe we're already in 2021. <laughs> Professor Thompson, thank you so very much for educating me uh, and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, 
If you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>